When you're trying to follow an invitation from God, it can be really easy to forecast out what it is that God's going to do and why he's going to do it. This season of the podcast is no different. When it became clear that God was inviting me to do a number of episodes about healing, and especially as guests started coming out of nowhere, I began to wonder, what is it that God's going to do? Who is it that God's going to heal? Now, if there's one thing we know about God, God is up to abundantly more, far exceedingly more than we could ask or imagine. That means whatever we want and whatever we're coming up with in our mind often pales in comparison to what God is actually doing. Often looks very different than what we wanted. And so while I may have wondered who God might heal through these episodes, it became clearer and clearer and clearer that one person God wanted to heal is me. Now, I came into this knowing that there are areas in my life where healing would be welcomed, but I did not expect it to go in the way that it's going. I have found myself pulled in in some really significant ways, and this episode is one of them. I'm going to give a trigger warning here. Our guest does talk about domestic abuse, but we spend a lot of time talking about secondary trauma. And what I mean by that is when someone's experienced trauma, but their trauma isn't trusted or believed, they can end up experiencing this secondary trauma, the trauma of being alone in your trauma, the trauma of your experience being dismissed. And the reason that I wanna give a trigger warning is because it impacted both of us as we talked about it. A similar thing happened in the conversation with Andrina a couple episodes back, where as we dipped into our past experiences, just talking about it did something within us. I've been able to experience some healing simply by being able to process with some of these guests. The trauma that we're talking about is real and the healing can be hard to come by. And so that's why I'm grateful for Rachel sharing and for what Rachel is doing in her everyday life of walking with people who have experienced trauma. But it's important that you come into this episode ready to authentically listen. This was a hard one. This was a hard one for me to edit. I had to stop midway through because it was reminding me a lot of wounds. But I do believe that God is up to something abundantly more than I could ask or imagine. And I do believe that it's beyond me, that someone listening now, there may be a healing in the works for you as well. We just need to trust that the Good Shepherd knows the way there. You're listening to episode 69 of the Where Did You See God podcast. Father God, I just thank you that you are God and you are good. And I just thank you for this opportunity with Rachel. And you brought this connection together. You have been helping her to see the story that you've been writing in her life, even in the times that it might not have seemed like a good story was being written. And I thank you for the opportunity to hear more about the story you have written, to talk about who you are in the midst of trauma and struggles, and to explore how you can be a healer even in the hardest of situations. And so I just thank you for this time. And right now, we just want to release it to you. We thank you that you do still speak. And so we want you to guide this conversation. We want you to be honored by it. And we also know that there may be people that you want to connect with that Rachel and I may never know about, but that you know. So we give this to you. We thank you. And again, we pray that you are glorified through it. Let's pray in his holy name. Amen. Amen. So Rachel, this has been an exciting time for me because... I've had more guests in the last month or so than I've ever had in that short span of time. And in this season, I've only known one of the guests. <laughs> All the rest <laughs> have been this flood through Podmatch and in a very God-driven way. Um, mm-hmm. And I share some about it in some past episodes, but I'm excited about it because whenever God brings somebody about, I know that's going to be a lot better than the best guest that I could think of or the best story or the best topic, because God knows what it is that needs to be said, what it needs to be shared. And so I'm glad you're here, Rachel. Let's imagine that 
Mattel is about to put out an action figure of you. Okay. And on the back of the box, it has the description of who you are. So <laughs> I'm it up, got a toy for my kids. What does the Mattel action figure for Rachel say on the back? Oh, wow. Okay. Action figure. So I am a big fan of Black Widow. So I feel like she would look like that. I know you didn't ask me what she would look like, but <laughs> I, I have to see it in my head. So I think on the back of the box, the first line would probably be something about me being a warrior. And in a lot of different ways in my life, I have shown up as a warrior. And I think sometimes, especially when I think of like Black Widow stories, sometimes you're a warrior, but you didn't ask to be. Mm. You're given a fight that you didn't ask for. You're expected to be part of a war that you had no idea that you were even taking part in. And I think for me, that's what I think of. And so I think on the back of that box, it would talk about the warrior that I am and the things that I've overcome. And because of the things I've overcome, I've gotten strength and resilience and a deeper faith because of that. And so I see them like as different weapons. What a cool question. I've never thought of this before. It would definitely say something about being a warrior, it would say something about the things that I've overcome is trauma. I did have postpartum OCD all three times with my kiddos. I do deal with chronic pain. And because of the trauma that I've had in my life, I'm definitely a mental health and trauma advocate because that does affect all of it. So I think back would tell this story, but also how every one of those moments, even though it wasn't a war I wanted to be a part of, because I stayed till the end, I was awarded with this strength and this resilience and this authenticity and vulnerability that I wouldn't have otherwise. I really like that. And I, I especially really like that notion of being a warrior, even though you didn't ask to be. Mm-hmm. And it made <laughs> me think of the quote from the Lord of the Rings, Yes. Where it's Frodo and Gandalf and Frodo says, I wish it need not have happened in my time, said Frodo. So do I, said Gandalf, and so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. Yeah. And it's just this powerful notion of these situations that we find ourselves in that we would have never chosen. But on the back end, and especially when we've learned to trust who God is, we can discover what he can do with that, who he can... Mm -hmm bring out within us who he can show himself to be. And one of the reasons I'm excited to have you on is because we've been doing this healing series. Mm -hmm. And when people talk about healing, they often think about physical healing. You know, I broke my arm, but then the arm got healed. And I really feel like God wants to flesh that out through this season. And so Mm -hmm. we started to tap into different things like trauma and, and things like that. But I love that your story as you've just shared in the brief synopsis, includes both trauma and mental health. And for the mental health piece, that's a stigma within the world, but especially within the church. Mm -hmm. And so I know I'm going to have many questions and many things, (laughs) but I feel like the best way to get into that is just to give you space to start sharing some of your story. So a little of the story. Okay. I was raised in the Baptist church. Um, So I had the normal nuclear family of, you know, brother, sister, mom, and dad. And then in high school, my parents got divorced and it was the first time that I was part of a church split, part of a great big, not only rocking my physical, like family and my nuclear family, but also my faith. And I was 15 years old at the time. And so, you know, super impressionable and all of that. And my dad was a leader in the church. My parents were youth leaders and all of that. The ripple effect of what happened was bigger than even just my family. So that was my first crisis of faith was at 15. And that, you know, it's pretty young to have your first faith crisis like that. But as I got older and I was going into high school and dating more often, my kids' dad and I met when we were in high school. We started dating when I was six. So it was about a year after my parents got divorced and we got married at 18 and 20. And right away, there were red flags for the alcoholism that started already back then, but would definitely multiply greatly during the 14 years that we were married. And in 2017, I ended up filing for divorce, which was something, I mean, speaking of stigmas in the church, that was something I never saw coming. Like I was on church staff at the time. I had been in and out of church staff at many different churches. For me, 
it really rocked my calling. How was I supposed to be a coach and a counselor and a woman of faith and still file for divorce and all of that? Like I knew what I heard from God on this, but what other people mm. saw and how I thought they would react, especially because we were, I was so, so good at hiding what was happening behind closed doors. And a lot of people had thought that by that time he had gotten sober, but nobody knew that that didn't actually last. And there was just a lot of things that people didn't realize. And so we got divorced in 2017. And then I started having this chronic pain and nerve pain and a lot of the mental health issues that were kind of not really covered up, but kind of blanketed with the trauma of, you know, just surviving everyday life with somebody that was suffering from alcoholism. All of that came to a head in about six months after I filed for divorce. My body was kind of like, okay, well now that we're quote unquote safe, here's some things you need to deal with mentally and physically that we've been like, you know, the book, your body keeps the score. If you've heard of that, or some of the listeners have heard of that, it's, it's very true. And I think a lot of the things that I wasn't able to deal with at the time, my body was like, okay, now's the time to do it. And had a total crisis of my physical health and my mental health, where I had to be going to doctors very frequently trying to figure out what was going on. It was that whole, your blood work looks fine. You look fine, but I'm like, I can't walk up my own stairs. I'm clearly not fine. And so during all that time in 2014 is when my best friend and I, since we were little girls, started our company. So we started, our first company was actually part of the church and it was going to be a lay ministry and quickly realized that God was actually calling us into the business community and not into the ministry, quote unquote, traditional under the protection of a church. We're building this company. All of this is going on in the background and when I saw what your synopsis of what you were going to be doing in the season and healing and how you think healing is going to be one way. And you, like, there were a few times, which we can get into where I heard audibly from God, what I thought was going to lead to this marriage being restored no. and how that actually played out. were so different, but the healing still happened. It just wasn't in the way that I was necessarily praying for or expecting it to be. So that's a little bit of my yeah. story. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a lot in there. Mm -hmm. And I'll be honest, there's one part that actually really resonated with me. Okay. That I feel like we should spend some time in, and it's more conceptual than specific to your story, Okay. Uh, but will involve your story, obviously. And it was this moment where you talked about that there were things happening and nobody knew what was happening behind closed doors. Mm -hmm. And I don't feel like we, as people in general, and definitely we in the church, really press into that very hard reality that yeah, yeah. a lot happens behind closed doors. And there is a lot of damage that happens when that stays behind closed doors, mm -hmm. when we are experiencing something that no one else knows or no one else sees, or, and this is to the point you made and it resonated with me, no one else believes. I've been in situations where some of my mm -hmm. deepest wounds happened by people that others looked at and said, oh, but they're a great spiritual leader. They're a good person. They're, I'm friends yes. with them. They're, yep. And there is a reality to what they're saying in some senses sometimes because you know the battle isn't against flesh and blood. And so it's not like when somebody hurts me, they're an evil villain. Mm -hmm. yep. Sometimes somebody is a generally good person that has also done something <laughs> that was not good. <laughs> Right, but right. When somebody doesn't believe the trauma you're experiencing, when somebody doesn't trust the trauma you're experiencing, now not only are you experiencing the trauma, but you're experiencing the trauma of experiencing the trauma alone <laughs> or yeah. unbelieved. And right. so yep. what does that shake loose in your mind when I say all that? Well, it definitely brings back memories of what 2017, 2018 was like. I think for my first marriage, people knew that there was struggle and it had always been a part of my story. So even, you know, as we were building this company, it was a part of my story. It was definitely a part of anytime I was speaking in front of an audience, anytime I was coaching or teaching people, I don't know how to teach without my story coming through. Like that's, it's just all integrated. And so nobody was a hundred percent shocked. Mm -hmm. I think the shock came from as 
bits and pieces came out to how high the level of trauma was behind closed doors compared to what they saw out in public or what they thought or interpreted and how far reaching that trauma was going to be and like the consequences to that. When we got divorced, even from people that knew things were not okay, even from people like close in our family and friends that like had spent time in our home and had seen these interactions, we were married for 14 years together for 19, including dating and engagement and all that. So it certainly wasn't a small amount of time. The shock of how people I thought would automatically, and, it, and not pick sides, but, I, but would believe that this is what happened and wouldn't question my own experience and what whether or not I qualified to be somebody who would claim, mm. you know, that there was abuse happening, even though when you talk about alcoholism, no matter who the person is, if they are a person of faith, if they are not, there are consequences to somebody who is dealing with that kind of a disease. And that includes domestic violence and abuse. However, you want to sugarcoat it, you can with like, oh, they're sick. Yeah, they are, but there are consequences to the family because of that. And, you know, there were many years I had left, I think it was a total of four times and then came back before the final time. And I find it interesting that we're, we're recording this in October because October is domestic violence mm. awareness month. Wow. And in the church, we don't talk about it. Um, when we would go to a pastor for help, they would just hand us a book or, you know, whatever, which I, I think part of the reason why I felt so called to first bring this company into the church, because so many pastors are not necessarily qualified to be giving that kind of advice where there's trauma or there's things happening, you know, behind closed doors that needs yeah. to be dealt with. And that's not usually a part of all of the training that they get in school. They spend very little time actually learning about the counseling side of when people are coming. But oftentimes, especially as people of faith, when you're having a crisis like that, that's the first place you turn to is your pastor. Yeah, I was shocked. I think I was even maybe even a little more traumatized by the fact that I had to, it's kind of like I had to justify and tell them, uh, Yeah. like people really wanted to know the details. And I'm like, our kids are little, they still are, all three of our kids are minors. And I'm like, you don't actually, you don't deserve the details. Like, I'm not going to rip myself open to prove to you that this happened. Like, I'm not going to take scars and wounds that are healing and open them up so that you can examine. And I think that's what I saw a lot from the faith community was, okay, but we see him, he was a high functioning alcoholic. And actually part of the story too, is that he is, you know, he's not an alcoholic. He's still an alcoholic, but he, he's been sober for two years. And then the restoration that's happened because of that, but he was so high functioning and he was a leader in the church and they couldn't put the two together, how it could be so different behind closed doors. And to me, it's always been such a disservice that we don't, not necessarily talk about it more, but even just accept the fact that so many of the people sitting in our congregations are dealing with this. Like, mm -hmm. it is not an anomaly that I went through this and I went and got the divorce. I think the anomaly is the fact that I actually took what it said in the Bible, what God had said to me and said, I have every biblical justification to do this. This is okay. The whole conversations around marriage in the church make women and men stay in these relationships longer than they need to because of that stigma, because we don't talk about it, because what happens when we do talk about it, we can see the public people that go through this. We can see what happens when pastors go through this, when leaders go through this and we're looking at it like, I don't want to do that. This has got to be easier. The pain I know is easier than the unknown. Yeah, that definitely was something I experienced quite a bit. I think as we're moving past the initial divorce and into family life, just being what it is right now, I don't see it nearly as often, but yes, in the beginning. And that was not a shock I was prepared for this having to like prove to people before they would be okay. Like I needed their permission <sighs> to be okay with it. <laughs> like yeah. it was, it was a bizarre journey. That's for sure. And doing it publicly because we were in the public eye quite a bit in our community was a whole thing. I'm thankful that it wasn't like some international or nationally known anything at that point. Cause I was like, oh gosh, that would have been worse, but it definitely 
brought back some memories and rattled some things inside my brain when you when you said that because it, it is definitely part of my experience for sure and I know many many other women that have had the same yeah I really appreciate you sharing all that because I really feel like there's something important here and it's in my mind the the phrase came up and I don't even know if this is a technical real phrase but it's it's almost like what we're talking about is a secondary trauma you have your initial yeah. trauma Yep. And then there's this secondary trauma and it's coming from a place where it, it shouldn't mm -hmm. because you are 100% correct. Too many people have to go through this place of feeling like they've got to prove or justify mm -hmm. their experience. Mm -hmm. I had a traumatic work experience. And when I look back, I realized some of the hardest moments from that were less the work experience because there's a lot that I can persevere through. Right. Yep. It was the fact that so many people didn't believe me or mm -hmm. so often I felt like I had to prove or justify it. Or what really triggered it for me, it was when you said you were questioning whether you were even qualified to say what you were saying. Yeah. Yeah. And there were moments and I've gotten to process this with more people since everything has moved on, but there were moments where I actually questioned my sanity. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, for sure. I was feeling what I was feeling. I knew what I knew and no one else seemed to agree and so what if I am legitimately crazy yep. <laughs> and, yep. and if yep. someone's never experienced that, cause I'm seeing it like in your face, like when you've experienced it, you yes. know, like, you know, you know exactly <laughs> what that feels like. And, but if and somebody hasn't like, experienced it, they don't yep. know what that does to you. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't even know how to put it into words because you are literally questioning everything about yourself. Right. And, right. oh, so yeah. like those moments for me were some so, of the lowest moments oh, some of the so lowest terrible. moments so to me like the the term that comes up in my head is religious gaslighting so gaslighting is yeah. a term that's used a lot when it comes to psychology and counseling and when it comes to trauma and anything with it comes to abuse or narcissism but that is that that secondary trauma that we don't talk about a whole heck of a lot and i think even i know you you know kind of alluded to it too when you've been hurt by leadership in the church mm -hmm. And I definitely have moments like that that have happened in my own leadership in the church, thinking that that's it partly it was because I felt like this calling that I have should be inside of the four church walls. And I was still kind of struggling with the fact that it wasn't going to be, yeah. you know, this secondary wound where, and we don't talk about it. We don't talk about the fact we went through a huge church split about the time, probably about a year before I filed for divorce. And, you know, probably 75% of the people who go to the church now were not the same people from, you know, five years ago. Um, that's how big the split was, like how infiltrated the toxic leadership was. And I remember talking at the times and like, we kind of had to gather in little groups, like us survivors, quote unquote, of this happening. And I said, it's almost like the church had a drive-by shooting and we are all laying on the ground wounded and everybody's just walking around like they don't see us. And I felt like that again, when the divorce happened and sometimes even too with the mental health component of it, you need to prove, well, why do you have PTSD? Uh, well, actually I don't have to explain that to you. <laughs> I think we're very ballsy to not think of a different word in the church to just ask each other why. Why is this happening? Why is it like this? And I think we put it under the guise of being concerned or wanting to pray or whatever, but it mostly is just kind of gossip and wanting to know. And there is a secondary trauma to it. And I think when it comes to gaslighting, whether it's in your relationships or in a corporate setting or in a church setting, it is so damaging. So, so damaging where you know that it's true, but you keep hearing from other people that it's not, that you start to question, okay, well, is it me? Am I the problem? Should I be doing something differently? And that whole wrestling of healing with God, where you're like, this is not at all what I thought this was going to be like, and this is not what you promised. And this is not what, you know, whatever, and getting angry at God, I definitely learned how to get angry at God and walk through that process of what it's like to wrestle with that in between of this is what you promised and i'm not seeing anything yeah. i'm not seeing anything like that um but i think many people that are probably listening have either experienced that and I, you don't ever want anybody to experience it but you don't understand it unless you've been through it yeah this like mental torture of 
justifying your story and your pain. It's definitely something I learned a lot in counseling and in some of the domestic violence support groups that I was a part of for a really long time is giving people space to not have to tell the story unless they want to. Like, it is not your right to ask somebody to just split their wounds wide open, whether it's idle curiosity or, you know, genuine whatever. It's not up to you to decide whether somebody has been through trauma or somebody has been through pain or somebody is justified in the actions that they're taking because of the trauma and the pain. Yeah. Well, and what's so frustrating about it too, is that we believe that the story is enough, but there's just no way you can effectively tell a story that like in your case spanned years and years and And it's, and it's in your home. So Mm -hmm. it's not just like really clear objective. This person did this thing and everyone can look at that and say, oh, it's like there are these things, but also there are these subtle things. And then there are these Mm -hmm. gradual things. And then there are these things that I can't prove. And I remember that was one of the frustrations for me is there were some objective things Mm -hmm. that I had. I was like, I had emails, I had texts, I had paperwork. And sometimes I would put that out there and even that didn't work. And I'm like, well, if the objective stuff doesn't do it. Right. And so, yeah, it, I, I really love that idea of how do we create space where someone can be safe without having to give their story to prove they're worthy of that. Right. right. And, and for many people telling the story, isn't safe. Yeah. Like telling your story re-traumatizes you. And, and that's something even, I don't know if it ever goes away. I've talked to people that have been years out from situations that I've been in and there's still this kind of, you know, it's not as big, you know, every single time it does lessen, thank goodness, but it does put you back into what things were like. And I think when it comes to trauma, we are much better about understanding one situation trauma. Like you know, if you went through something horrific one time, and of course that would traumatize you, a fire, a natural disaster, you know, being robbed, being raped, going to war, that kind of thing. The subtle trauma of everyday living with somebody who's dealing with a mental illness, somebody who's dealing with a disease like alcoholism, somebody who, you know, is just an abusive person because of their own, you know, childhood or whatever, that stuff that wears year after year after year, sometimes decade after decade, um, that is harder for people to see because it's when you can look outside of it and see the whole story, you're like, well, of course you're traumatized, but how to get to the whole story is traumatic. How to tell the whole story is traumatic. And for many people, there isn't healing found in telling the story. For me, because of part of my calling, there is a healing element to it, but that's because I was called to tell the story. I was called to you know, shine a light that I've gone through this so you can too. That I think requires a different kind of grace from God to be able to tell the story over and over again without being re-traumatized over and over again how I tell my story even now compared to how I told it four years ago has changed because I've changed as a person. Like I have done the inner healing work that I needed to do on what healing looked like for my family compared to what I was praying for and being able to tell that story in a way that does bring healing to others without traumatizing people. Like that's been a whole journey, Uh, but people wanted that right away. They wanted you to be able to justify all the things right away and give like really specific examples and stuff. And I'm like, I'm not even sure in my own brain I have figured this out yet. Like I'm still living in fight or flight. And it took like two years to kind of figure out specific details. And I have huge parts of my life that I don't remember. Yeah. I think God does that on purpose (laughs) where, where you do forget things because you're in that fight or flight mode and not because every day is traumatic. And I think that's one of the things that people I thought would understand, but like, it was kind of like you had to justify the fact that there were long seasons of time where things were good. And if things were good, then why did you go? And if it wasn't bad every single day, you weren't like justified to leave then. Like, couldn't you have stayed? Couldn't you have, you know, whatever. Um, And I definitely had to wrestle with that too. That whole, does the good outweigh the bad? And am I justified if there's, you know, if there's seasons where, you know, we had brought kids into the world and there were definitely times that things were better than others, but mm-hmm. he was always an alcoholic, no matter if it was good times or bad times. And that trickled down into every single good time we had. Yeah. 
you know, there's, this is so nuanced. There's so much yeah. here and you're talking <laughs> and I'm like, I want to say this and I want to say this and I want to say this. And, and I still want to say all those things, but then you just said something else that I'm like, <laughs> so important. Sorry. Um, you know, it's when, so there are many challenges to how we tell our story. We desire to tell our story, not because we want to tell our story. We desire validation. Mm -hmm. We desire there to be this general consensus that we're telling the truth about our experience, that we weren't wrong for some of the decisions that we made to stay or to go. Like we, we desire mm -hmm. this validation. And what you and I have experienced is just telling the story doesn't guarantee that validation. And one of the hard things about telling the story is there is this expectation internally and externally, almost like we are a lawyer. Mm -hmm. You've already talked about this element of having to defend and justify, but there's also this belief that you have to be able to give a very clear, objective, concise yep. account that details everything like a lawyer yeah. would at a trial. And what you said that pushed all the other things aside and, and put this up front is that there are things that you've forgotten. You don't remember till later. And it was like a grace mm -hmm. of God to protect you. But the other piece is there are things that we don't understand in the midst of it. And what it shook oh, yeah. loose to me is this is something I haven't, and I'm not going to share it now, but uh, the, something I, very few people know, but I experienced sexual abuse when I was a kid. Okay. And I knew at the time that there were things that were wrong. There's a lot that I didn't know that was right. wrong, yep. but this is the moment that really rocked my world. 20 years later, God brought some memories up and I was at a different place having been married having experienced different things, having learned different things. 20 years later, it hit me. Oh my gosh, mm -hmm. I was sexually abused. Like <laughs> up to that point, I didn't even know yep. really what it is that I understand now. I didn't realize how God had protected me that now I look back and I'm like, oh my gosh, that could have right. been so much worse. And the person involved 10 years after it happened, they called me one day and they called to apologize and they were talking through. And this is the crazy thing at the time, like I'm really good at accepting <laughs> apologies. And so I, you know, I accepted their apology and, and we moved on. But 10 years after that, I was like, oh my gosh, like I didn't realize just how much they actually had to apologize for. And so right. sometimes we can experience something and not even fully understand what we're experiencing. Oh, absolutely. And yet, we are expected internally or externally to explain and justify that. And again, this comes back to the mental health piece that mm -hmm. what that does to your mind, to your mm -hmm. emotions, to your relationships, to your interactions, uh -huh. because now you can't be your full self because your full self is wrestling, mm -hmm. but you can't present that to the world because the world won't understand. So now you got to throw out the, oh, I'm fine. Like yeah. when you're not, and right. now you're not seen, people think you're fine, but you're like, well, I'm not fine, but I can't, right? right? It's this yeah. huge, huge weight to carry. So this is my question. I still have a whole load of things, <laughs> but, but here's my question. If telling the story itself mm -hmm. doesn't bring healing, if you tell your story and it's not validated, mm -hmm. how is it you find healing from something like what you've described? So I, th I think the uncomfortable truth for many of us is we had to find healing and acceptance outside of the church. Mm. And for me, I had this moment that kind of changed everything where I was okay with the fact that I was going to carry this label of domestic violence and all of that in my life. Because the first time that I actually went to a meeting, all I could think was, I am not supposed to be here. I, I don't qualify to be here. What I went through doesn't qualify. These women have had it so much worse than I have, because a lot of that is just mostly sharing because you know, it's a space that nobody's going to ask you more questions. It's a space that even if you have an experience the exact same thing you know what the emotions feel like you know what the helplessness feels like and I don't remember what the story was that I shared it was probably three or four weeks maybe even a month into going every week I went every week for like almost two years because that's where I found my healing at when it came to accepting these pieces of my story and what actually happened like fleshing out memories as they would come and I remember telling the story one night and like everybody around me that was listening like jaws were dropping and like they were having the reaction to my story that i had had to so many of theirs like 
theirs is so much worse than mine. I, I don't qualify to be here. And that night changed everything when I realized that I had just shared something that many of them had never experienced before and were shocked. I think that is the uncomfortable thing that that it's not how it should be. I really do believe that that's not how the church was intended to be, that we have to go outside of the church to find this kind of acceptance. I think there needs to be both. I think that there needs to be this place inside the church and whether it's, you know, small C church, like the building or big C church, like, you know, all of us as Christians that we can create these safe spaces. But I didn't have anything like that here in my town. I'm not sure if other people do elsewhere where they're like, oh, we have something like that. And then you wrestle with that whole idea of, you know, where's your faith if you're not getting healed? Like, if your anxiety isn't going away, if your depression isn't going away, if the PTSD isn't just going away on its own magically because you're praying it away and you're doing all these things and, you know, have you tried essential oils and have you done all the things? Like the last possible thing you ever want to do is actually go to the psych therapist, do the things you need to do, get on the medication that you need to get on because that whole wrestling of faith thing happens. And I think we forget that there are natural consequences to stress and trauma, and they forever change the chemicals inside of our brain. And because of that, I believe that God does work through medicine, that God does work through his people to create things that can help us live a better life. So, you know, that domestic violence group was the first place that I found that healing and that acceptance where I could be like, okay, I do belong, not a club anybody ever wants to be a part of, certainly not something I thought that I'd be like finding such deep connection and healing there. And then after that, that's when I moved into more traditional therapy. I still continue to do counseling to this day because I am remarried now. And gosh, does that stuff have ripple effects way longer than you think? Because I remember when we first started dating, now this, my second husband is somebody I've known since I was six years old. So it was definitely somebody that I trusted and knew, I don't know if I could have done it with anybody else, but I remember at one point, and I don't remember if it was a counseling session or what it was, but I remember talking to him and saying, I don't. I don't know if I remember who the real me is, because when I think back of some of the trauma with my dad started, I was little and a lot of it was more of the emotional type. And, you know, he wasn't super great at knowing how to connect with me or how to raise me correctly. And then there was a lot of reasons for that. And so I was like, I think I was 10 or nine or eight. The last time I felt like me and how do I find, how do I find that? Again, how do I find that person if I don't even know what she looks like, if I don't even recognize her, if I don't even know what she thinks or what she likes to wear or anything like that, that loss of identity piece. So I still, to this day, have to work through and have to, you know, I have to stay on my medication. I have to be going to counseling. I have to be doing all these things, or I'm going to repeat generational cycles that have been repeated through my family line to my kids. And that was part of, that was a huge reason why I left what I did when my kids were still little, because I have this moment where I was sitting down by, we like, we like to camp. We live in North Dakota. We like to camp. We have like three weeks out of the year that are like nice of the entire year. And so people get out and go camping. And the final weekend during our separation, we were camping that weekend. And there was a big incident that happened with drinking and all of that stuff. And I was sitting down by the lake, just by myself for whatever reason, I had a few minutes alone because by that time he was getting pretty paranoid and he'd come find me wherever I was. Like it was a lot, like he was not doing well at all. And I had a few moments alone and I was just like, you know, pretty much just angrily calling out to God being like, this isn't fair anymore. Like, I don't know how to do this anymore. Like he's not getting better. I have done all the ultimatums I know how to do. The physical violence was increasing inside the home, which is when you study domestic violence later is a great indication that things are going to go bad very quickly. And, you know, you just get out just in time before that does happen. And I remember thinking at the time, like, I don't know how to do this anymore. And I, To this day, I say it was audible, but it could have just been in my spirit. And God was like, it's time you can go now. And I got up from the lake. I grabbed my littlest one who had been crying and and all of that. And I picked her up and I went into the camper and I said, I got to go. This is it. Like, I can't do this anymore. And so I took her, went home. I left my other two with him. They wanted to stay and, you know, talk to my mom had, you know, did all the things. And she said, you know, cause I had the ultimatum was a year 
to get to treatment to make some, you know, very serious, you know, I needed to see actual behavior change. And we were probably about nine months in and I'm like, mom, I can't do this anymore. Like I can't, I said, God told me to go that it was going to get more unsafe and, and it was time. And she said, then you need to go. And then the next day I had told him and we told the kids and I was moving out. And, you know, those moments where I knew what I heard from God, but finding who I was after that, like the strength and the warrior thing, even going back to like those moments where I've had to be a warrior, I know how to do that. The moments where I had to get quiet and find out who I was in God again and find that identity and wrestle with my calling. Like, how do I be a Bible teacher and have a divorce? How do I like do all this stuff? How do I have a Bible study? I mean, we retired the first edition of the Bible study that I wrote that's now out for the second edition because I couldn't, I couldn't wrestle with it. Like it was already out. By the time we had gotten divorced, it had been out for a year and I pulled it because I couldn't handle that. Nobody told me I had to, but that was my own. I didn't feel qualified. So that was four years in the making of everything I have done mentally, physically, spiritually to get to the point that I read the book itself and then came at second edition and being okay with the fact that my story includes this. And that doesn't disqualify me from the calling that I have to teach and to coach and to bring this light into the business community where so many women have dealt with church hurt, have dealt with domestic violence, have dealt with all the things that they feel disqualify them from their own calling, or they haven't found the healing that they need in the church. And somehow they find me through that vulnerability and through the story. Cause I do share a lot of my story in the pages of the book. It is a Bible study. So it's snippets, of course, of the book. The book itself is, is a work in progress right now. Yeah. That identity piece of who am I after this? Who am I really? Like, who was I before? Mm-hmm. You know, cause it was like 20 years. If you put it all together, not even almost 25 that there was traumatic things one right after another and picking those pieces up and realizing that the restoration story wasn't my marriage. It was me yeah. was huge for me. And that, that realization changed everything that my story was bigger than my first marriage. And it always would be, it'll be a part of it. It'll be a chapter, but I thought that was my entire story. And if that story wasn't there, I didn't have one. And so wrestling through that the last four years on what does healing look like? Certainly divorce was not what I thought healing was going to look like, but that divorce brought healing to my family and my kids and my ex-husband in a way that staying together, I know wouldn't have. I'm not sure we would have survived and somebody not getting hurt, something happening. He nearly died from his body shutting down. He ended up in the hospital for quite some time getting different things done because his body couldn't handle it anymore. You know, it was a serious, serious situation in many, many ways. And watching what's happened now and him getting clean and sober and working on building his own relationship back up with his kids. And even me, we co-parent in a way people are like, you never expect. And it's, it, that's all where the miracle came in. That is all where the restoration came in. We're both remarried. We share the kids and all of that. And if you looked at us now, you would never think that that was part of our past and part of our story and part of things that our kids still deal with. Like they, they have the mental health issues because of the life that they lived. They have the different things that they need to watch for when it comes to depression and anxiety. And we have definitely had the conversations about alcoholism and, you know, this stuff passes through your genes and you need to be careful with it. And so, yeah. When I saw that, like I said, I was like, oh gosh, healing that comes in a way that you're not expecting. And what do you do? You're wrestling with the fact that that healing you called for and you asked for and you prayed for and you thought God told you was going to happen was not at all like it. Like the marriage wasn't restored in the way that I would have thought and the church would have taught me to believe was going to happen. That restoration only happens if you stay together. And that's not what happened. And I think we have one of the most beautiful restoration stories, but it's not what I thought was going to happen. Yeah. There's just, uh, there's just so much that we, I mean, this could be a whole series in and of itself. I know. I'm like, I'm like I have a lot of things I can talk about. Yeah. <laughs> and, and there's so much, I, I really appreciate everything that you've shared. And, and I, and I know there's so much more that you could have shared. So, you know, you made the comment that when it comes to healing, the sad reality is often that healing is found outside of the church. Mm-hmm. And what is so heartbreaking about that is that that shouldn't be the case if we're talking about the church as Jesus talked about the church, right. yes. as yep. Jesus demonstrated. 
And when we say the church and when we experience the church, what we're often experiencing is the Christian religion Mm -hmm. versus Christ following. Because what's so beautiful is some of the healing that you've described came in very simple ways. You had Mm -hmm. an opportunity to be yourself in a room of people who are going to love you no matter what you said, right? Right. That and healing began to happen, not just for you, but the people listening we're yep. experiencing like, yeah, and that is that kind of thing should exist within right. the church. Like yes. it should exist yep. among believers. But too often, what we within Christian religion do is operate in this mindset that the goal is for everything to be fixed, for there to not yes. be pain, yes. for there to not be hardship. And because we have that foundational belief, it shapes everything else, which leads back to what we were talking about earlier, why it's so hard for people to share, because I imagine you probably experienced this, but one thing that I experienced when I would begin to try to communicate, hey, this situation isn't good. This needs to change. The response that I get was ultimately that was my fault because either I was just too immature or too weak or too emotional Mm -hmm. or too all these things that I was too this and I needed Mm -hmm. to grow up. I needed to mature. I needed to build some skills, some resilience. They didn't right. know the resilience that I was operating in. Right. I had to grow right. more resilience or that it's my fault because I stayed in the situation. I was going to ask you this question. And I love that you shared the story without me asking. You got to a point where you felt like God said to you, it's time you can go now, which implies <laughs> that there were many conversations before yes. that where God <laughs> did not say it's time. And yep. that was one of the struggles for me is. There were many moments that I wanted to leave that ministry job Mm -hmm. and I would pray and God would say, I need you to stay. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. okay. The first time I'm like, okay, God, I'll trust you because if God's telling me to stay, it'll get better. It didn't get better. I'm like, God, I want to go. I need you to stay. But God, (laughs) it's getting worse. Then it got to the impossible point where there's no way I could keep on going. Mm -hmm. And God said, I need you to trust me. I need you to stay. Because this is what scripture tells us about what God's after. He's after abundantly more than we can ask or imagine. So I knew everything that I was asking for, and I knew everything that I was imagining needed to happen. You had things that you were asking for for your marriage. You were imagining marital restoration, right? Yes. Yep. We're talking about a God who's like, I see that, but I'm trying to do far exceedingly more. Mm -hmm. And this is beyond you and your relationships. It involves that but I'm doing something way greater than even you. Yep. And I need you to trust me. You know, the other thing that I just wanted to make sure I didn't forget to mention here is you said something really important that because so many Christians believe that perfection is the goal and is attainable, mm-hmm. it's really hard for us to make space for continuing trauma. You, yep. you made a comment earlier about alcoholism and you kind of was trying to figure out how to word it because you're like, he's, a, he's an alcoholic. Well, he's not alcoholic anymore, but he's still... Because the reality about alcoholism is you may have stopped drinking, mm-hmm. but that remains something that you work through for the rest of your life. Absolutely. He has to work through it literally every single, every single day. Yep. Every single day that is his lot in life is to stay sober. You know, in the beginning, it was minute by minute. Yeah. And I think for me, I, I really wrestled with that because I had a lot of anger that I wasn't expecting when mm. he got sober after the divorce because I was like, how come that did not happen during? Like, I'm so thankful that it did. I'm thankful for my kids. I'm thankful that they can recreate their storyline because he was willing to do this. And that was the hard thing I had to get to was this wasn't just about me. And I had this idea that if I, you know, finally make good on that, I'm going to leave it's going to somehow turn this light bulb on his head and I'm going to somehow be his savior and he's going to get better. That is not what happened. I was not his savior. And I do remember when I left and praying to God, because it was in our oldest was born in 2006 and it had to be around 2007, 2008. I was at a prayer meeting thing. And that was always the thing I was praying for was, you know, these moments and things were really, really bad then. And I was preparing to leave again. And I don't remember what I was praying for exactly, but you know, I've heard God audibly like this twice. And the first time was in 2008. And God said, when are you going to get out of the way of what I need to do with? And I was like, um, what does that mean? Hmm. Exactly. And all I did is repeat it. When are you going to get out of the way? 
And I'm like, what does get out of the way mean? So I answered back and I said, I'm scared. Claire was a year and a half. I hadn't even graduated college yet at that point. Like I had nothing. I had no plan. And that's a lot of the reason why women do end up saying is there is no financial resources to go. And I was like, I don't know how to do this. And the promise that I got was that God's like, I will take care of you and I will take care of her no matter what. I think what I did from 2008 to 2014 was if I get out of the way, God will restore my marriage. And that is not what he said. Mm-hmm. It's hard for me to say I should have left sooner because we have these three beautiful kids. I left when I felt like God told me to go, but I think I definitely added some heartache to it by not quite understanding what God actually said and wanting to hear it the way I wanted it to be, which was like, and I took it to get out of the way of, if you learn how to be more respectful, if you learn how to be, you know, whatever you're going to somehow, if you can love the alcoholism out of this man, Mm -hmm. then you have gotten out of the way. So my job then became learn how to love him no matter what. And you become small so he can be doing, you know, whatever. There were no boundaries. There was no anything like that because I'm like, I'm getting out of the way so God can do what he needs to do. And it was, I think, some emotional immaturity and just age immaturity too, looking back now. But I really did not realize what God had actually said to me till about two years ago when I was reading through the book again to say, you know, I think I want to do a second edition of this. And I was like, you know what? I had that promise wrong all along. The promise was to take care of me. Yeah. The promise was to take care of my family and the promise was to take care of him. So when I left, I reminded God of this all the time. I said, you told me in 2008 that if I got out of the way, you would take care of him. I expect you to take care of him. I said, I don't know how low his rock bottom has to get. It turned out much lower than I thought it was going to be. But I said, this is your child. And you promised me that there was going to be restoration. And clearly it's not going to come through the way that I want it to, but I expect to see a restoration story here. And that was my, my prayer to God for a long, long time Yeah. as he struggled to stay sober. Yeah. Seeing that promise come through and the restoration that has happened. And he has done exceedingly above taking care of me, taking care of my kids and taking care of him in a way that I thought getting out of the way would never actually be, which is actually physically get out of the way, like get out of the marriage, get out of the things. I'm not entirely sure that's what he meant. Back in 2008, it's probably one of the things I'm going to for sure ask when I get up to heaven, like, mm-hmm. what did it mean? And what was I supposed yeah. to do? Yeah. There's been times, like you said, there was quite a few years from it's not time to go yet. And now it's time to go because I had left a few times in between there and then went back because it wasn't time. It just wasn't time. And I don't know why it just, it just wasn't. And I've had women ask me, like, how do you know when it's time to go? I'm like, well, God told me audibly. And I don't know if that's what he's going to do for you, but I'm like, I, that's how I knew it was time to go. And because he said that it was. And it's hard because there just aren't clear and easy answers. Mm -mm. And in a way, it gets easier and more complicated when it's someone who is trying to be a Christ follower. Yep. It's easier because we have this secret weapon of being able to talk to the God of the universe who knows yep. everything. And it's harder because it's not as clear as we think it would be. Right. Ask God, he should tell us. And, and part of it is, you know, somebody could look at this and say, oh, what kind of a cruel God do you serve that he would make you stay mm-hmm. in an environment that is clearly hurting you? Right. And that's, right. A, that's a fair question. It is. Yep. And it's not one that we're going to be able to answer all right here. But one thing that it makes me think of is it comes down to a lot of things. One, we are constantly learning to grow and understanding what our goals and pursuits are. And when it comes to honoring God, part of that journey is recognizing that sometimes there are good goals and pursuits or right goals and pursuits that still have to die in light of making God the goal and pursuit, because you could have had simply the goal and pursuit of not being hurt. That is a good and legitimate goal. And (laughs) And there are many solutions to that, like dipping right at the first sign. Yep. I'm getting the impression that part of your goal and pursuit was you were desiring to seek God. You wanted Mm -hmm. God to be your goal and pursuit, which meant you were conceding Mm-hmm. your will and goals to his. And that meant staying in a space that you might not have chosen because your goal right. was to get closer to God, which it sounds like you are now closer to God than you were. Oh yeah. Oh, before. for sure. 
<laughs> but the other piece is, is that Joseph was seeking God and his family was seeking God, but then they started seeking things other than God. And so sometimes it's not that our pursuit of seeking God puts us in bad situations. Sometimes it's because we're living in community, there are ramifications to other people's decisions to live for themselves. Oh, yeah. And that's something that I've had to really grow in understanding is this isn't God punishing me or God being cruel. This is God giving us all the freedom to live mm -hmm. as we choose to live. Because I'm still in this world, sometimes I'm going to suffer the consequences of somebody else's bad decisions, right? even if right. they never do it. And yet there's still a good and loving God who will carry us through. I want to encourage anybody who is maybe at this end of the journey where you are, that mm -hmm. God has brought you from it. And now you are continuing to process it. You are continuing to walk with others. We need to get better at showing grace to that continuing trauma. You know, I, I remember seeing this image, it was talking about grief, but it works for trauma where it's like you have this box and the grief was this huge ball in the box and it was always hitting the button on the wall, always hitting because yep. it's so big. And then as you grew and as you kind of worked through things, maybe the ball of grief got smaller, but mm -hmm. it could still jostle in the box and then still sometimes unexpectedly hit that button. And to this day, like I've been out of that environment for three years, technically, but an additional year before that, when God brought some freedom when I was still in that space. But to this day, I will sometimes still send an email and feel this like oh, sense yeah. that I'm going to be in trouble. Yeah. Or I have the person that I work alongside at YWAM and who I serve under, I've never served under somebody as loving and aware and gracious and God seeking as this guy is. And the role that I have, I don't get paid to work there. I live off of support. So functionally, it's not your typical work environment. And yet, even though he is incredibly loving and understanding and appreciative and mm -hmm. often talks about my gifts and skills and how much it's been a gift to have me there. And even though there's no ramifications, I can't lose my job. I can't right. lose my paycheck. I still have moments where something happens in an interaction that I'm afraid he's about to reprimand. Mm -hmm. He will yes. absolutely never wrap, <laughs> but I still have, because that trauma is real and continues. Yes. And so we need to understand that we got to extend that grace to each other, whether we feel like they deserve it or not. Mm -hmm. So again, we could keep on talking forever and ever and ever. <laughs> I wanted to leave space for two more questions. Okay. The first question is if people want to engage with your content, with your resources, with your devotional, how can they do that? And then the second question is anything else that's on your heart or mind that you want to share for those that are listening? Okay. So the easiest place to probably find me would be at my website. So that's rachelperman.com and I'll spell it. So it's R-A-Y-C-H-E-L-P-E-R-M-A-N.com. That's the easiest way to find me. You can find the book there right up in the menu. It does say Rayma Team. So you can find out more about my actual company that I do and the coaching that I do, all of the services that I do. You can find all of my social media handles and all of that is all on the website. The links are in there. The blog is on there. Our podcast is on there. So that's probably the best place for people to go. You can find the book on Amazon if you want to search for it there, but I would say probably my website is the best hub to find everything at for all the things. I love that you brought up the fact that we do need to make this space for continued healing. One of the really pieces of bad advice that my second husband and I got when we were talking about dating and getting married and all of that was that we should wait until I'm better. Mm. And thankfully we didn't, he was much more trauma informed. And I've had people call me on this before and be like, is that a faith thing? If you are constantly saying, I still get triggered all the time. And I have done all this therapy. It's been five years and you know, all of this stuff. This is something I'm going to forever deal with. And I don't think it's a lack of faith. I don't think that I am speaking things into the universe or death over my situation or anything like that by telling the truth of the reality of this is where my mental health is. This is where my physical health is. There are consequences to the life that I lived and this is what they are. And I think for people that are listening to this right now, if they are in that space where I'm at, where that day where you got better never came. And like you said, you know, with the box, the ball gets smaller or like you learn how to carry the grief better, but it never goes away. And there are moments where it is going to just come out of nowhere and you're like, well, what's happening? And I don't understand why. And you might feel like you've gone backwards and like, wasn't I healed from this? Shouldn't I be further along? And I think 
if anything, giving encouragement to anybody who's listening right now, whether they've gone through what I've gone through or they're grieving from some kind of different anything, there's not a magical point someday on the calendar where we all just get healed until we are in heaven. Like that is how this goes. And so giving space for yourself first and grace for yourself first, that this is the normal part of healing, that it's not an instantaneous thing. And I think even if it is an instantaneous thing, that there is still a path to walk. And it reminds me of, is it Paul that talks about the thorn in his side or whatever? Like there are things that, and that's mine. And I don't take it as a burden. I don't, I mean, it's a burden, but I don't take it as I was cursed with it, or I was, this is just a product of the war I didn't ask to be a part of. I'm thankful, which is weird to say that I was a part of. It makes me who I am today. And I think that would be my encouragement that it's okay if you never get to that date on the calendar where I guess I am better. I am healed because I don't know if it ever actually happens. I'm definitely better every day. I get better. Some days feel one step forward, two steps back, but it's not a forever thing. If you're not finding it in the environment inside your church home, that you don't necessarily need to go find a church home, but I would say it's okay if you need to look for your people that have been through what you've been through outside of the church walls. I don't think that that's a bad thing to do, to find the help that you need, find the doctors that you need, the counselors, the therapists, the coaches, create your own healing environment so that as you walk through this life, you can do it at your very best with whatever thorn in the side you're carrying, you can carry it as best as you possibly can. You will walk, you will run, dance through the streets, shouting praise to the I prayed about how to close this episode out, God brought to my mind the story of David and particularly the fact that I've never sat and thought about the impact of trauma on David's life. Because here's the deal, David was a shepherd and I imagine he may have been content being a shepherd for his whole life, but he was thrust into things for the rest of his life that he didn't necessarily choose. He didn't choose to be anointed as king by Samuel. He didn't choose to go and play the liar for King Saul. He didn't choose to go and fight Goliath. These were all things that others brought to him and that God invited him into. But he willingly stepped into these spaces. And as he did, he found himself in an incredibly hard situation where the king, the authority... And at that time, a significant spiritual authority, the king grew angry with him. Not because of who David was or what David did, but because he had something going on within him. In other words, there was nothing that David could have done to make things better. We learned some of the overt things that David had to experience, including Saul trying to kill him multiple times. Saul even used marriage to his daughters as a way to have David killed by enemy armies. Saul was trying to literally kill David. But what we don't read is some of the internal stuff that had to be happening in that environment, particularly because while David may have wanted to leave, he was not able to for some reason. And he kept on going back to Saul. Or Saul would have a change of heart and things would be better for a time. Right? What I'm getting at is this had to be so traumatic for David. And we don't talk about that. We don't really talk about David's journey of healing from that trauma. And if you're not convinced that David was wrestling with some deep, deep trauma, you can just look at the Psalms. Take Psalm 13, for example. How long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. I've read that psalm a lot. 
there is a Shane and Shane song that in some of my hardest seasons I've listened to that is based on that song. But when I read that before recording this, it hit a little different because I could hear things in what David was saying that I hadn't noticed before. I knew David was in pain, but David was working through trauma. And there were a lot of people that didn't believe him or didn't understand or thought everything was fine when things looked fine. And David was warring in his heart. And here is what is so beautiful and heartbreaking at the same time. You know, we look at the end of that and say it with a smile. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. And that's how I've read it in the past. It's like horrible thing, horrible thing, horrible thing. Christian platitude. God is good. When I read it this time, I read it in the same way that we've heard many of our guests say something similar. That things were incredibly hard and seemed hopeless. And there was no clear way out, but they had resolved to trust God. Not because of the evidence, but because of a step of faith. In an upcoming episode, you'll hear another story of someone who got to the point of literally shaking their fist at God and then ultimately saying, but I'm not going anywhere, God. So here's what I'm getting at. I want to encourage anyone who's listening who is feeling that psalm at the depth of their being, that you hear those words and you know what it's like to feel so abandoned, so low, so heartbroken. I want you to know that you are not alone. And it's hard because in a lot of ways you will practically and functionally be alone. (laughs) But you're not alone. Others like David have gone before you and have experienced what you're experiencing. And God is with you even if right now it feels to you like it felt for David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? It's this hard tension of knowing that you are technically not alone while also having to function in a lot of solitude. God is with you even when it doesn't feel like it. God loves you even when you feel unloved. And God sees you when it seems like nobody else does. This is a hard one. And I don't want to fall into the trap of giving nice platitudes or saying, this is all you have to do. Because recording this episode, I became aware that I am still working through a lot of this. But I can see the evidence that God is moving. Even if I don't know where the road is leading, I know there is a good shepherd leading the way. So I'm going to keep on going on this journey. But I want to invite you to come with me. If you haven't listened to the past healing episodes, I'd encourage you to do so. Because I think there is something very strategic about the guests that God has brought in and the timing that he's done so. For me personally, but I think also for others. So join me on this journey. And as we find ourselves in the hard moments, even then, let's ask, where did you see God? Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Where Did You See God podcast. And I would love for your stories to be a part of it as well. So there are a number of ways that you can do that. You can check out our Facebook page at Where Did You See God podcast. You can go to anchor.fm slash Where Did You See God, or you can leave a brief voice message at 804-372-3836. I would love to hear your stories. And if the stories you've heard have encouraged you, Uh, Think of someone else who could be encouraged as well and share it with them. The music you've been listening to is You'll Walk, You'll Run by Urban Doxology. They are a solid group and you will love listening to the rest of the music. So check them out. And as always, as you go through your day, ask yourself, where did you see God?